thank you to Lance Quinn for uh, finally inviting me to come <laughs> to Bethany Church. Uh, no one has been a dearer friend to me through the years than Lance. I, I think uh, in my own heart I feel as close to him as, as anyone outside my own family. Um, a treasure in every way. And uh, he is basically the MacArthur librarian. Everything I've ever said is in his head. He, if I want to know what I believe, I call Lance. And he can tell me why I believe it, where I said it, what book it's in. Amazing. Our friendship has been around the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, around the ministry of the church and around God's people. Uh, We have borne each other's burdens and carried each other's cares. We have prayed for each other's families and children, and we've certainly been praying for Beth a lot. Patricia loves Beth so dearly, and so do I. So we have you in our hearts, um, and all that the Lord does here is uh, not only an answer to your prayers, but an answer to our prayers as well. So it's a special privilege to be here. I could go on and tell you all of Lance's secrets, but might not, might not be wise. Take too much time. There are too many that are too wonderful. Um, I want to try to give you a gift this morning, if I may. Take your Bible and open it to Isaiah, the passage that was read, the end of 52 and chapter 53. If I only had one opportunity to speak to a group of people, I would speak on exactly this chapter. I can't give you a a greater gift than this chapter, and there are a lot of reasons why. This chapter is prophecy. It is prophecy that uh, by the time we're done will take on new significance that you no doubt have never thought about. But it is obviously prophecy related to the death of Christ. The details of his death are laid out in this prophecy. 700 years before he was born, the Spirit of God revealed to Isaiah what is essentially the first gospel. Matthew is the second gospel. Isaiah 53 is the first gospel. It is the first divine account of the birth and life and ministry, and death, and resurrection, and ascension, and coronation, and intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are more familiar terms explaining the doctrine of justification in Isaiah 53 than in any New Testament chapter. There is more familiar language that has found its way into hymns from this chapter related to the gospel than any New Testament chapter. This chapter is so evidently about Jesus Christ that it has been called the torture chamber of the rabbis. You may have heard an interview I did with Ben Shapiro. I went right to this chapter, and I spent about 15 minutes unpacking this chapter for him, Um, and amazingly, he didn't interrupt at all. He listened very carefully. And I was thankful for that. And somebody asked him afterward if he was offended that I should be so direct. 
in speaking about Jesus Christ to him, and his reply was, and he had it on a podcast, no, I wasn't offended at all because I know John believes that with all his heart. And secondly, I know he cares about my soul. It was such a penetrating and overwhelming chapter that I think that was his response. There are groups of people that uh, traverse the land of Israel and uh, Christians, missionaries, who go up to random Jews on the street and say, could I read something to you? And they read Isaiah 53, particularly verses 4 to 6, and they then ask a Jewish person, who's that talking about? Inevitably, the answer is, well, it's talking about Jesus. Do you know that that's found in Isaiah 53? They're shocked because in the regular readings of Scripture, they skip Isaiah 53 in the synagogues for obvious reasons. Apart from Jesus, it is impossible to explain. The darkness loves its darkness and will not come to the light. This chapter is set in the book of Isaiah, which is structured like the Bible. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. Even the people who put the chapters together many centuries ago understood the uniqueness of this book. There are 39 chapters about judgment and 27 chapters about salvation, paralleling the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go to the final 27, which are about salvation, there are three sections of nine chapters. The first nine are about the earthly salvation of Israel. The last nine are about the salvation of the planet and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And the middle nine are about the salvation of the soul. If you go to the middle of the middle nine, you're going to end up in the very middle of the middle nine, the middle of the second half, you're going to read... He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The structure of the book focuses down on these very words in a remarkable way. Something else about this book that is stunning is that it asks the question that all religion purports to answer. Religion is only good essentially for one thing, and that is to get you on the good side of whoever's God. That's why religion exists. Whether it's animism and you're afraid of, uh, of the gods that live in the creation, or whether it's a complicated, uh, sophisticated, um, multi-god, pantheistic religion like Hinduism with millions of gods, the whole idea of religion is to get you from the bad side of the gods to the good side. You're trying to appease the gods. All religion is designed somehow to uh, transcend this earth and convince some deities that he should treat you well. You're trying to mitigate their wrath and their anger, whether it's making an animal sacrifice like the people who worship Baal or Baal, or whether it's going to the Roman Catholic Church and going through the Mass and all the other machinations that are part of that external system, you're trying to appease God. Or whether it's the complicated work system of the Mormons, that by doing certain things, going through certain religious ceremonies and behaving in certain moral ways, they're attempting to get on the good side of God so they can end up forever in the right place. That's what religion does or purports to do. Unfortunately, all of it is satanic. 
All of it is deception. All of it lies. The sign says heaven, but it goes to hell. There's only one religion that goes to heaven. There is no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. Whoever doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. So says Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. There's no salvation in any other. So all religion is satanic deception. All the gods of the nations are demons, says the Old Testament. None of them actually answer the question that religion, to be valid, has to answer. And that is, how do I get on the good side of the everlasting God who is the final judge? That compelling question is the question answered in Isaiah 53. So it is a remarkable chapter for those reasons. It's remarkable because it predicts things that are 700 years away and predicts them in detail, and only God could know that. It's remarkable because it answers the single most compelling question that any soul will ever confront, and that is, how can a man be right with God, to borrow the words of Job? Most people who are Christians know something of this chapter, and when it was being read, you were familiar with it because it's in your songs and hymns, and and you've read it, and you've memorized it. And if you haven't memorized it, that's your assignment this week. (laughs) You need to memorize Isaiah 53. It'll be one of the most precious treasures you will ever possess. Obviously, I can't cover all of it, but I'm going to give you a, a good kind of overview Let's go back to chapter 52, verse 13. And you're going to have to follow carefully. Here God is speaking. First person. Present tense. Behold, my servant or my slave will succeed. Throughout this section of Isaiah, God introduces the one who is called the servant of Jehovah the slave of Jehovah, the servant of Yahweh. This is the Messiah. There are several chapters that point to the Messiah from chapter 42 till you get to chapter 53. This is God introducing His Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, His servant. And He declares that His servant will succeed. Now that is a remarkable statement and sets the course for redemptive history. Whatever God has planned will happen. Whatever God has designed will come to pass. Nothing and no one, not the forces of humanity or the demonic forces, can withstand the purposes of God. God predicts that the servant will succeed. To borrow the language of Paul, we always triumph in Christ Jesus. So he announces the success of his servant. In fact, he then introduces his servant to us. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Three statements. High, lifted up, greatly exalted. Those three expressions are found in one other chapter in Isaiah. And that's chapter 6. And the same three are used to describe God on the throne in Isaiah 6 high and lifted up and exalted. He is introducing that his servant will be God. 
It will be God Himself, the high and lifted up and exalted one. This is a stunning revelation. The Messiah, the one who will succeed, will be God, the very same God sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6. And by the way, New Testament writers interpret Isaiah 6 as a reference to Jesus Christ. But he will not only be God, verse 14, this is continually God's introduction of him. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, uh, the astonishment here is based on the fact that they suffered so much. These are the Jewish people who were God's people who declared to be the people of the one true and living God, and yet, astonishingly, they had a very hard and difficult path. It was astonishing to see the things happen that happened to the people of God, but His appearance was marred more than any man. Just as many were astonished at what you suffered, His appearance being marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men will be equally startling, equally astonishing. And by the way, His appearance was marred more than any man. Now we know He's not only God, He's man. So here we are introduced to the God-man who is Messiah. And even though He is God and He will be a man, His appearance will be marred more than any man. Was he uglier than any human being who ever lived? Certainly not. Not at all malformed by any sin created by God the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. He would have been the absolute perfection of human creation. What do you mean he was marred? See him on the cross. His body has been beaten to a pulp His head is crushed with thorns. His hands and feet are riven with nails. Blood, sweat, running down, a blanket of flies. This is the marring of the God-man. More than any man? No, there were many others crucified around the time of Jesus. 30,000, they say, were crucified. Why is he marred more than any man? Because he's disfigured not only by human injury, he's disfigured by God's wrath as God executes him for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe through all of human history. Pretty incomprehensible to think about it. And he did it in three hours of darkness. He absorbed all the punishment, all the punishment of God's wrath for all the people who would ever believe through all of redemptive history, and he absorbed it in three hours. You talk about a tortured soul. Sinners go to hell and stay there forever and never, ever finish the punishment. How is it that Jesus can absorb all this punishment in three hours for all who would ever believe? The answer is he's an infinite person. His marring was infinite. So he's letting the Jews know that the Messiah will be God, Messiah will be man, but the Messiah will be marred more than any other man has ever been marred. 
something happens in verse 15 in God's introduction. Thus he will startle, is a better translation. I don't know what the ESV says, but thus he will startle many nations. Something's happened here. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This is something very different than what we've heard. The God-man will be marred, crushed, disfigured more than any person who's ever lived will be disfigured. And then all of a sudden, he will startle many nations. He will silence and shut the mouths of kings. And this is talking about his second coming. This is talking about his coronation. This is attached to the first statement, my servant will succeed. He will become king of kings. He will startle all nations, shut the mouths of all kings. And what had never been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. That is to say, things will happen when he is crowned that have never happened in the history of the world. So they have the introduction by God of the Messiah, his incarnation as the God-man, his death, and then his coronation, which assumes what? If you go from death to coronation, you have to assume resurrection. That is God's introduction. First person, present tense, God speaking. No wonder it uses the word behold. This is stunning. Something happens when you come to verse 1 of chapter 53. Because now... It's not a single person speaking. It's not God any longer. It's a group. All of the pronouns are plural. Uh, Consistently. Who believed our message? Verse 2, that we should look on Him. That we should be attracted to Him. We did not esteem Him, verse 3. Now, all of a sudden, there's some group talking here, some collection of people. And what are they saying? Well, they're looking at the servant, and they're saying, who has believed, literally, the message given to us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which of us actually saw the power of God in him? These are the Jews speaking. These are the Jews who didn't believe. He came unto his own and his own what? Believed him not. So here, from the very mouth of the Jews is the confession, we didn't believe the message And we didn't recognize the power as being the revelation of the arm of God. Now, Jesus' life was a power display like nothing in all of redemptive history, right? John says there were so many miracles that he did, they couldn't even be recorded. They were constant. The explosion of divine power through the arm of the Lord, and that is the the right arm of the Lord in the Old Testament is always the arm of power, the display of power was inescapable. The, the collect, collective Jews, people of Israel, leaders of Israel, never denied his miracles. They never tried to deny his miracles. 
They tried to shift the source of those miracles from heaven to hell, but they never denied them. And here's a confession. When the message came to us, we didn't believe it. When the arm of the Lord was revealed to us, we didn't see it. We, we didn't receive it. Why? Why did you reject Jesus? Verse 2 explains it. Well, he grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot. Now, that sounds kind of tender, but that's a sucker branch. He was nothing. He was a sucker branch. What do you do with a sucker branch if you're an agrarian farmer? Cut it off. We didn't see him as anything other than a sucker branch. He did not fit their messianic picture. Or he was like a root out of parched ground. That's, that's very dangerous. That's parallel to what Paul says when he says the Jews saw Jesus as a stumbling block. Now, on a pathway, you don't want a root sticking out of parched ground because somebody will trip and fall. He was just in the way. He was a stumbling block. He was nothing but a dry root. He was nothing but a sucker branch. It needed to be removed. He has no stately form or majesty. In spite of the art of the Middle Ages, Jesus didn't have a halo. And his robe was not always pure white. It was dirty with the dirt of the earth. And his feet were dirty and his hands were dirty and his face was covered with dust. He had no stately form or majesty. After all, he came from that nowhere place called Nazareth, a dumpy town. Not even, in, not even in or near Jerusalem, but up in the Galilee of the Gentiles, in that out-of-the-way place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's nothing about his heritage. Father was a guy who worked with his hands. There was nothing about his education. He was not a rabbi. He was not a scribe. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He wasn't an Essene. He wasn't anything. Religiously speaking, he was a nobody. So when we looked at him, there was nothing about him to attract us. This was not the picture of Messiah that they had in their minds. They had Messiah riding in like a conquering hero, knocking off the Romans and giving them all the promises given to David and Abraham to fulfill the kingdom. Not this sucker branch, dry root, nobody coming out of nowhere Pretty interesting, isn't it? Because this is being said by a group of Jews. So let me tell you something right here. This is not a prophecy about Christ. This chapter is a prophecy about what the Jews will say about Christ in the future. This is not a prophecy in the first place, about Jesus Christ. It is in the second place, but in the first place, it's a prophecy about what some Jews are going to say in the future. At some point in the future, they're going to look back and they're going to say, we didn't believe Him, we didn't acknowledge the power as coming from God, 
There was nothing about him that attracted us, nothing in his appearance. In fact, look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. The word men there means men of renown, important men. And what they're saying there is that our leaders rejected him. What are we supposed to do? The leaders rejected him. Why would we accept him? And he was a man of sorrows. He was a sad figure. A sad, almost pathetic figure. Acquainted with grief. In fact, he was rejected so frequently that the disciples got tired of it and wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume a whole town because they were so weary of being rejected. In fact, he was so despised and forsaken, such a sad, pathetic figure, so helpless that he was like one from whom men hide their face. Uh, I suppose someone who was so disfigured, so disabled, that if you were walking toward that person, you'd turn your head away because it would be too embarrassing to look and reveal the expression on your own face. So he's too horrible to even look at. He's the kind of person you hide your face from so he can't see the expression on your face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. That last part of verse 3, we did not esteem him, means we thought of him, thought of him as zero. Zero. Nothing. By the way, that is still the Jewish version. You can hear Ben Shapiro say that. I reject Jesus Christ because he doesn't fit the messianic picture. That's what the Jews are someday going to say. Do you know what this is a prophecy of? This is a prophecy of the future salvation of Israel. Did you notice something else? Not only are there plural pronouns, but everything is in the past tense. Has believed, has been revealed, grew up. He was despised, forsaken. He was despised. We did not esteem him. That's all past tense. So this is a confession by future Jews looking back at Jesus and saying, this is what we've always thought. And that's exactly what they say today. We thought he was nothing. But then something dramatic takes place in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Whoa. Wait a minute. Is there a little gap in your Bible between 3 and 4? Take a deep breath. You have just gone from Jewish unbelief to Jewish confession of belief in Christ in that gap. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Griefs meaning our outward calamities. Our sorrows he carried, our inward pains. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought that when we handed him over to the Romans to be killed, we were doing God's work. We thought when the Romans executed him, that he was being stricken and smitten by God, that he was being afflicted by God. Look, we were the people of God. We were doing God's work. 
And he was a, to sum up his trial, he was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. And we were doing the work of God to execute a blasphemer. We thought he was being smitten by God because of his own blasphemies. But now we see it differently. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Look at verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. This is stunning, isn't it? This is the prophecy of the future salvation of the nation Israel. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look back on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son. And Zechariah says, When they do that, a fountain of cleansing will be opened to the nation Israel, and they will be saved. This is not a prophecy of Christ on the cross. This is a prophecy of the future salvation of Israel when they look back on the cross and see the truth. This prophecy is so staggering that it sweeps from seven centuries before Christ to the end of human history and the final salvation of Israel. You can look into the details of this. He was pierced, feet, hands, head with thorns, side with a spear. He was crushed. Chastening is the only word in Hebrew for punish. He was punished. But notice that they understand the doctrine of substitutionary punishment. He was punished for our shalom. The whole idea of religion, I said, is to make peace with God, to be on right standing with God. So he was punished for our shalom. And by his scourging, he was scourged. We are healed. Now you'll notice he talks, they talk about sins, transgressions, plural, iniquities, plural. Transgressions, iniquities. Jesus died being punished by God for our sins, our acts of sin, whether thought, word, or deed. He was punished for our acts of sin. He was crushed, punished, scourged, pierced, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Not for any sins of his own. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But for us, for our shalom. But not just for the sins we committed. Look at verse 6. There's something deeper than just our behavior. Uh, Jesus had to die not only for our behavior, but for our nature. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep have a propensity to wander. We all understand that. They have a very small brain. Um, They're difficult to deal with because they're hard to teach any habit. They're, They're very docile but stupid. And they wander away, and shepherds have to be careful about being guardians of the sheep. There's something like that in our nature. When he talks about the nature of sheep, he's using that as an illustration of our wandering, stupid nature. 
that leads us astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, just like sheep. We just wander off. So we, we have to deal, God has to deal with the behavior and he has to deal with the nature. And in the, in the work of Jesus Christ, you can understand it this way. Christ paid in full the penalty for all of our sins of behavior, thought, word, and deed. And he paid in full for all the sins that never got germinated into life. But they were latent in our nature. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, not the sins, not the iniquities, that's back in verse 5, but the iniquity, the natural fallenness that's in all of us to fall on Him. So He died not only for what I did, but for what I am as a sinner. This is a very, very clear grasp of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and its theological significance, isn't it? This sees this as imputation of our sins to Christ, Christ dying as a substitute, atoning for not only the sins we committed, but the sins that are latent in us that never had been brought to the light. So literally, he, he paid in full the penalty for all the sins we committed and all those that were still potential, that were just slight stirrings in our fallen nature. And the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The future generation of Jews that makes this confession will understand the doctrine of justification better than a whole lot of people who go to church who don't get this. Paul summed it up by saying God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God put all our sins on Him so He could put all His righteousness on us. And that's what these Jews will say in the future. So the very explanation of His cross is there. He puts our sins and our sinful natures on the servant. Our sins are imputed to Him. Verse 7 backs up from the cross to his trial. He was oppressed, that's speaking about his trial. And literally in Hebrew, he allowed himself to be abused. They slapped him, spit on him, punched him in the face, put a phony scepter in his hand and a phony robe on his body. He allowed himself to be abused. And then he didn't open his mouth. Silent like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Stood before Pilate and what? Said nothing. How does Isaiah know this? And by the way, I've had some experience with uh, sheep down in uh, New Zealand. It's interesting to, to understand that shepherds get very close to their sheep. Jesus brings us up in John 10. My sheep know me. They know my voice. They follow me. And all that a sheep ever knows from a shepherd is care. Um, protecting, rescuing, cleaning, which is necessary all the time because there's so much lanolin in their, in their skin, hide. So all the sheep ever know is comfort. All they ever know is comfort. 
until it's time for them to die. And they come to the shepherd silently because all they've ever known is care and their lives are taken. And when the sheep do this, they line up in a line and they come toward the shepherd and the the lead sheep has always been called a Judas sheep. All you could say that the Lord Jesus ever knew from the Father was love and care. And he followed right into the Father's will to die in silence. Like a sheep, silent in the slaughter and silent before the shearers. There's no pain in the shearing. That the sheep appreciated. The silence of the shepherd mirrors the silence of a sheep. The trial was illegal. Verse 8, it was oppression, illegitimate, an illegal trial. Oppression refers to that illegal trial. Then it says in, by oppression and judgment, judgment means the verdict. The judge made the verdict. Blasphemer, he will die. Following the verdict, he was taken away. That's the sentence. You have an illegal trial and judgment and sentence. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Okay, that's execution. So an illegal trial, a judgment, a sentence, and an execution all squeezed into a few hours, right? The trial's in the middle of the night, and by the morning he's on the cross. Jewish law forbid that. If you go to the Talmud, codification of Jewish law, it reads this way. After Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin waited 40 days before they executed him at the hands of the Romans. That's a lie. Why did they rewrite that history? Because everything about that trial was illegal. It's illegal to have a trial in the middle of the night, and it's illegal to execute somebody the same day you have a trial. So there's no possibility for more evidence to show up. If you further read the Talmud, you will read other horrible things about Jesus. But that one was where they tried to rewrite the record of what they did. And by the way, in verse 8 it says, As for his generation, take the whole generation. Who considered he was cut off from the land of living? Literally, who protested? Who protested? Who said, whoa, 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 stop this? No one. But why did this happen? At the end of verse 8, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. That is a great line, isn't it? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. God knows who his people are. Not just any people, my people. That's the doctrine of sovereign election. He literally died for the transgression of my people, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Listen, mark it clearly in your mind. Jesus did not die a potentially atoning death. He died an actual atonement for the sins of His people who were in Him in His death and resurrection. There are people who think He died for everybody in the whole world. If He died for everybody in the whole world, then He actually provided atonement for no one. He only provided a potential atonement. That completely redefines the work of Christ. 
then it isn't even an actual atonement. What is it? It is some kind of potential atonement that you activate by your will? The Scripture says, it was for the transgression of my people, the people called by my name. He received the stroke that was due to them. He did not die a potential death for sinners. He died an actual atonement for His people. The details of the theology of justification and the atoning work of Christ are so explicit in this chapter that you would think it was written by the Apostle Paul, not 700 years before the New Testament. He bore in His body our sins, 1 Peter 2.24. And then look at this. After His death, His grave was assigned with wicked men, of course. And what did they do with wicked men? There are lots of people being crucified. They threw Him in Gehenna. Gehenna is the word for the dump in the valley of Hinnom to the south and east of Jerusalem. That was a city dump, and it was fire burning all the time. That's kind of where they got their metaphor for hell, um, the, the fire that never quenched. And this is what they would do with common riffraff that were crucified and languished on the cross for days, and when they finally died, they'd throw them in the dump. That's where Jesus would have gone. That's what would have been assigned, a, a grave with wicked men, if a grave at all. But something very, very different happened. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. How in the world does Isaiah know that a rich man would show up, claim his body, and take it to a new tomb? Matthew 27, wonderful story of Joseph of Arimathea. He never ended up in the dump. Why? Because Psalm 16 says this, that God would never allow his Holy One to see corruption. He wasn't going to be burned up. His body would never see corruption. He would be in that grave and out of that grave, incorruptible. Why, why this immediate sort, sort of upward movement? The worst that can happen is he's killed for the transgression of his people. He provides the full atonement. His grave is to be in the dump, but God stops that. Again, Psalm 16, 10, and 11. And he ends up in a brand new tomb in the care of a rich man. Why? End of verse 9. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And that's Psalm 16, 10, and 11. God will not allow his holy one to see corruption. This story turns right there. This is the first step up. Did God lose control of this? No, look at verse 10. The Lord was pleased to what? To crush him. Not in the the agony, but in the atonement. He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Not just a martyr, but he rendered himself as a guilt offering. He died literally, the guilt offering, he died under the full sentence of the law. The full condemnation of the law upon every soul who would ever believe through all of redemptive history was meted out on him. It was as if 
he had sinned all the sins of all the people through all human history who would ever believe. He became a guilt offering, though he was without sin. The Lord was pleased to crush him, not because the Lord loved the agony, but because the Lord saw the purpose in atonement and redemption. The Lord put him to grief, not like a martyr, not as it were just uh, to show people how to sacrifice for the things they believe in, but God put him to death as a guilt offering for satisfaction, propitiation, restitution, reconciliation, restoration. Do you know why he's called the Lamb of God? The Jewish people would bring a lamb to Passover. They would choose the lamb to be sacrificed and offer the lamb. God chose his lamb. He's the lamb God chose for the ultimate guilt offering. Then something really astonishing happens. In such a brief statement, verse 10, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Now, wait a minute. If you've just had your life cut off, if you've just done what Jesus had done, received all the fury of God's wrath as a guilt offering, and his life was extinguished, how does he see his offspring? How does he prolong his days? Right there is the resurrection. I think about that maybe as I get a little bit older. I'd like to see my offspring, seen my kids, obviously, seen my grandkids, and we're about to enter into that new world of great-grandchildren. I'd like to see the, the story fully told. I, I'd like to live long enough to see the fruit of everybody's love and investment and prayers and uh, the Word of God in the lives of the people in my family and next generation. I'd like to see that in my church. I've been there half a century already. I've seen a lot. I'm basically preaching to fourth generation in some cases. I'd love to be around to see the work of the Lord, but I'm not going to be around. God knows how much longer. But I promise you this, I'm looking back from, you know, the the end of this all. It would be wonderful to be able to see what the Lord does in all these lives. I won't see my offspring continually, but Jesus will see his offspring. And he will prolong his days. Three days later, he came out of the grave to live forever in heaven with all of the children that he purchased on the cross. And then verse 11. This is summing it up. How does Jesus feel about this, all that he has gone through? As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be what? Satisfied. (laughs) It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Uh, It doesn't have adjectives. Satisfied is a word that you don't need adjectives. When it's all said and done, and he's come into the world, and he's given the message, and it's been rejected, and he's displayed his power, and it's not been received, and they've despised him and rejected him, and considered him as nothing, a sucker branch, a dead root to trip over, 
And they take him and they put him on a cross. They execute him. And he goes through the horrors of not only what happens to him physically, which is minor, but literally divine wrath poured out on him a million hells in three hours. In the end, he will see his offspring. He will see those he purchased. And he will be satisfied. It's remarkable, isn't it, that in the redemptive plan, the satisfaction of Christ is connected to us being in heaven. That's why the gospel writers tell us that when we get to heaven, he's going to put on a towel and a robe and wash our feet and serve us dinner. We are the satisfaction of the Redeemer forever in his presence. Now, listen, all of that is in the past tense, all of it. He bore, he carried, he was smitten, afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, on and on. All past tense, all plural, someday in the future the Jewish nation is going to look on the one they pierced and mourn for him as an only son. And this will be their confession. This is what's going to come out of their mouth. This has come out of the mouths of many Jews already. And it's come out of the mouth in some form of every Christian. Because there's no way to be saved other than to confess this. This is the confession that is necessary to be a believer in Jesus Christ. To confess that He is the God-man, that He died a substitutionary death, atoning for the sins of His people, that He rose from the grave, and that He provides forgiveness for all who believe. He will be satisfied. And then God speaks. He led off in chapter 52, and now God signs off. Middle of verse 11. This is so good. By the knowledge of the righteous one, my servant, many will be justified. You want to be justified? You want to be made right with God? That's the ultimate question religion has to answer, right? You want to be right with God? You want to be justified? It's the knowledge of the righteous one, my servant. You must know the servant of Jehovah, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many and will bear their iniquities. So God says he will be satisfied and all who know him will be justified because he will bear their iniquities. Now he's speaking in the future. God in Isaiah's day looking at the cross in the future as the bearing of the iniquities of all who will believe. There will be many. And then verse 12 caps it all off. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. That is, God is going to give Christ the inheritance. Now, we heard the young people singing earlier from uh, Revelation chapter 5. What is the scroll? Well, what is the scroll? It's the title deed to the universe. When John says, you know, where is someone who can unroll the scroll? He's saying, who is worthy to take the title deed of the universe? Who is worthy to throw out the usurper Satan and take back what is rightfully God's? And John weeps, and there's no one showing up, and all of a sudden comes the lion and the lamb. 
the lamb who has been slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah are the same person. And he takes the scroll and then he unrolls the scroll and the unrolling of the scroll goes from chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 19 until the scroll is fully unrolled and he returns to earth to reign. That is the portion that the Father will grant to him. He is the heir. And the good news is we are joint heirs, right? With Christ. So I will divide, allow him, allot him a portion with the great, the great referring to the redeemed, and he will divide the booty with the strong. If you say, wait a minute, should the redeemed be called great? Sure, because John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived up until his time, great because of the work of God in his life. And we will be truly great when we are perfected in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord will divide the portion with the servant of Jehovah and with those whom he has redeemed. He will divide the booty with those who are the strong, another reference to those who once were weak and now are strong. And we will all share in the eternal inheritance. Why? Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That does not mean he was crucified between two thieves. When it says he was numbered with the transgressors, it means he was counted as a sinner in our place. And it's explained in the next statement that he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's the story of Jesus. All the way from his incarnation as the God-man to his exaltation and coronation when God gives him the inheritance and all the heavenly booty and he takes the title deed to the earth and heaven and reigns forever as king of kings. Why does God do this? Because of the sacrifice Christ accomplished perfectly. God was satisfied. That's propitiation in the fact that he bore our sins and took our place. Anybody who makes this confession makes that confession which is necessary for salvation. This is the only true religion. This is the only true confession. Father, we thank you for a wonderful morning, and we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for this powerful chapter. Thank you for this precious congregation, wonderful church, and thank you for Lance, the faithful leader and shepherd. And Lord, I I pray that this chapter may find its way into the fabric of our hearts and souls and, and that it may bury itself so deeply that it will always be instantly recalled for our own joy and edification and worship toward you. We love you. We adore you. We thank you for what you have done for us, incomprehensible, that you would, before the foundation of the world, choose to bring us to eternal glory and share the inheritance that belongs to your Son with all of us who once were weak and once were no one and identify us as great and strong in Christ and joint heirs with him. Until that day, we want to be faithful here. We look forward to that day and we say with John, longing for the day when we enter into that inheritance which is undefiled, set apart for us, as Peter said, we long to say with John, even so come Lord Jesus. We pray for your glory. Amen.